Hi, I'm Bob Ramsey, Toronto writer and commentator. Twice a week, I offer my take on the world, from craven politics and unchecked ambition to secret sauces, bitter loss, and fist-pumping redemption. The stories to live by. Quirky, high-style, tear-jerking, funny ha-ha, sometimes funny peculiar. My tales don't walk down the sidewalk and browse in the windows. They sneak into alleyways and come out onto different worlds. Alex Brown narrates each mini-podcast to bring to your ears what you see with your eyes in my twice-a-week blogs. And now, today's episode of Ramsey Writes. The arts are opening up. We should, too. Written by Bob Ramsey. We went to the Toronto Symphony last week and heard their first live performance at Roy Thompson Hall in 20 months. I got an email at 2.30 that afternoon advising me to turn up early because everyone had to show their vaccine certificates as well as their tickets. Then at 4.30, the symphony sent me another email and at 5.30, a voicemail. So we turned up at 7 p.m. for the 8 p.m. concert and breezed right through. But the concert was 15 minutes late in starting, and I heard later that the night before, it started at 8.25. Then again, Toronto is not Vienna, where the Vienna State Opera issued this edict on Wednesday. Even if you are fully immunized with a double vaccination and even received the third jab or recovered from COVID, you must also show a negative PCR test when you visit our performances. Clearly, arriving early is a new reality of attending any big event, from a concert at Roy Thompson Hall, to a hockey game at Scotiabank Arena, to a performance at the Wiener Staatsoper, which may cut into that pre-show dinner revenue nearby restaurants live or die by. Speaking of life or death, when the musicians came out on stage, the entire audience stood up and applauded them, which also happened at the National Ballet up the street, at the Four Seasons Centre. It was great to be back as an audience and to see, hear, and feel the reason we came back as well. All the recorded music in the world can't replace the thrill of a live performance. Not all orchestral musicians survived the pandemic, or at least not all their jobs survived, and not all professional orchestras will survive either. Symphony orchestras were clawing for relevance and audiences before the epidemic, It's going to be very hard for some of them to stay afloat, given something disturbing I noticed as we were waiting for the concert to begin. While about 1,500 of the hall's 2,600 seats were occupied, I chalked this lack of a full house up to attendance hesitancy. Even people who've been triple-vaxxed are holding back, until they receive a clearer all-clear to gather in public. But as I looked around the seats before the concert began, I saw that many of those in the audience were old and white and, if not stale, then growing frail. I include Jean and me in some of those adjectives. I'm not telling the marketers at the TSO or the Canadian Opera Company or the National Ballet anything they don't know. They've been fighting this trend for decades, as has virtually every other professional orchestra, opera or dance company on earth. Among them, the TSO is very resilient. I remember in the earliest days of COVID, it was on March 20th of 2020, one week exactly after we all went into lockdown, that the TSO became one of the first orchestras anywhere to produce an online version of a famous 
upbeat piece of classical music. It was Aaron Copland's Appalachian Spring and has been seen nearly half a million times. They also have a charismatic new conductor, Gustavo Jimeno. He's energetic, handsome, youngish, and Spanish. And if the orchestra's applause for its new conductor is a sign, he's also very good. So let's hope his five-year contract as the TSO's new music director, delayed by two years, is not just of great things to come, but even more so, of stability to come. But how do orchestras survive? In this digital, no-attention age, how do you attract an audience who, for the most part, is introduced to classical music when they're children, as I was? Orchestras of every stripe have used all kinds of lures to get young people to enjoy the live experience of a symphony orchestra, from ultra-cheap tickets, to leaving their giant home halls to play in smaller venues, to performing more contemporary works, to making the musicians, and not always the conductor or soloists, the stars. For the most part, though, these have been a modest success at best, and certainly don't bring new money into the bank. No, and sadly, it seems the cure for lack of money is money. In Europe, governments cover a large share of the big arts group's budgets. In Canada, it's a mix of governments, corporate sponsors, and ticket revenues. In the U.S., private donors account for a much bigger portion of an orchestra's budget, especially in building its endowment so that its funding is secure. Recently, big American orchestras have received huge donations from individual donors. In 2019, Philadelphia got $55 million. $55 million from an anonymous donor. This August, a New York couple gave $20 million to Lincoln Center. Then, in September, the Cleveland Orchestra received a $50 million gift. Within hours, the tiny Phoenix Symphony received $7.5 million from a private donor. So far, no such big gifts have been announced for Canadian orchestras. In fact, the largest gift ever received by the Toronto Symphony Orchestra was in 2019, when the Beck family estate donated $10 million. These days, $10 million donations to universities and hospitals have been pushed into the second balcony in terms of size and newsworthiness. So, if you have that kind of money to give away, and you've grown to love classical music, and you love your city, do I have a donation for you? Today's Ramsey Writes was read by Alex Brown. For more information on Bob Ramsey, his work, and all the other things he does besides writing, go to ramseyinc.com. That's R-A-M-S-A-Y-I-N-C dot com. <laughs>